0: Well good morning, we have a lot to do this morning and I do have a couple of uh, announcements to make. As Scott had mentioned earlier, it is our Love Life sponsored week. And so we are really excited as a church to partner with the Love Life organization and focus um, as a church family on this endeavor to see abortion come to an end in our country. Um, So on Wednesday, if you would, if you would like to, you could join us on a day of prayer and fasting in anticipation for Sunday's prayer walk next, or sorry, next Saturday, sorry. Next Saturday, the 22nd, is the prayer walk, and you can join us for a day of prayer and fasting on Wednesday. I was looking at some stats about Love Life, and we have been involved with them for a number of years now, but as an organization, it was founded six years ago, and since then, 4,500 and a little bit more families have been saved because of the ministry of Love Life by people standing up and praying, standing in the gap and praying for people who are considering abortion. And those are the number of lives and families, not just the baby's life, but the family's life is impacted. And it is us standing in the gap and praying. I love what they say, that their goal is to create a culture of love and life. And the reason why this problem exists, it's not that it is just darkness. It's that there's an absence of the light of Christ in people's lives, and we have the ability to bring that to them. So we encourage you to join us, if you would, next Saturday from 9 to 11 on Randleman Road in Greensboro for our annual Love Life Prayer Walk. And, and there, there are so many other days, but this is our specific week. I also want to just mention thank you. Uh, This weekend has been a busy one for us here in the Youth Student Ministry at Triad. It is our annual Disciple Now weekend, and I just want to say thank you to you. So many of you, whether you have kids or grandkids in the ministry, I want to thank you for allowing them to be a part of the ministry. I also want to just thank so many of you. There's too many of you to name in this room, but as I look across, I see so many who stop me constantly and and say, I am praying for you. I'm praying for your ministry. So I just want to thank you as prayer warriors um, who actually lift up and and do the diligence of praying for our ministry. I just want to let you know that our students this week have been fed by God's Word Uh, continually. We've had three sessions. They're in one right now with a guest speaker that we brought in, a camp pastor from a summer camp, and they've been going through the seven I Am statements of Jesus through the Gospel of John and so many great conversations with students as they get to know more about who Christ is. And so I just want to thank you again for praying with us and for us, uh, for the students in this church and the young people who are coming as the next generation. All right, well, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 3, verse 15. I'll allow you to get your place there as we do that. And as you start to flip through the pages of Scripture to get there, I will pray in a moment. But again, just want to say thank you as we look at this Disciple Now weekend and the things that were stated for the students, the I am statements, really got me going to a, a specific place I wanted to go with you and with us as a church, because here's the thing. We are, we are telling these students what Jesus said about himself. He claimed to be God. That's the point of the I am statements, but within those I am statements is also a revelation about who Jesus is and what his character is like. Now, if you know who Jesus is, there's something that should follow. There should be a desire to be with him, That's the whole point of Christianity, is being with Christ, dwelling with Him, both here and in eternity. And it's that second half of that statement that we're going to focus on in our time together this morning. It's actually a little bit of a follow-up from what Pastor Rob spoke on if you were here with us celebrating Easter last Sunday. He did an amazing job of talking through the bodily resurrection of us as believers because Christ had a bodily resurrection and so what I want to do this morning is I want to kind of follow up with that, and what I want to do, my goal, is for us to see, OK, we know that's, that body of resurrection is coming. What do we do with that reality now, as we are still here in the waiting? Or as one musical artist that says, "This is just the waiting room. That's where we, we dwell right now. This is the waiting room for something better. But what do we do with the knowledge and the hope? Of that bodily resurrection in eternity. And that's, that's my goal this morning, is that we may consider what that does for us. Before we read Philippians 3, let me pray for our time together. I often like to take a second and just ask that the Lord bless this time together and that His word will be spoken and not the words of a man. So let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we, we come before you asking you to reveal out of your word more of your grace and more of your beauty. That we may understand in a newer way who you are, the depths that you love us, the grace that you offer to us freely, the forgiveness that is found only in the name of Jesus. And God, we ask you to do what only your Holy Spirit can do, is speak to the heart to work through the callousness that sometimes exists in our hearts, the hardness of heart that we still sometimes hold on to in our flesh. God, may your Holy Spirit drive through that. And may everything that is remembered today be the words that you speak, not the words that I speak. So, God, we lift up your name today. May you be honored and praised in all that we do together as we study your word and as we continue to sing and fellowship together as your church. We pray these things in your Son's beautiful name. Amen. Amen. Philippians 3, 15, and we are going to end in chapter 4, verse 1. Here's what the Word of God says. It says, "'Let us, therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded, and if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing.' Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk, so as ye have us as an example, for many of whom, as I have often told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. For our conversation is in heaven." From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working, whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. This passage if I give you the context beforehand, it's really important to understand. It's actually one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. Philippians chapter 3 is Paul really giving you an emotional appeal of the glory of the cross and the gospel message. Chapter 3 has some really great highlights. I'm just going to give you a few words. This is not on the screen or in your notes, but these are some of my favorite verses. He says something as bold as this. I count everything as loss for the sake of Christ. He says even further down, I want to know him in the power of his resurrection and share his sufferings, becoming like him in death, and that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And then, in the verses very preceding our passage this morning, he continues on and he uses some very strong language to talk about this pursuit, this run that he is on. This morning's sermon is titled, Run For It. Now, not, not like the evacuation type of run for it, whereas if the sirens would go off in this building and we'd all say, run for it, exits here, exits there, women and children first, men follow, run for it. It's, it's not that type of run for it. The, the admonition here is run for something, go after this, chase it down, and here's what Paul is talking about. These are the words that he uses before he gets to the passage we used. In, in Philippians 3.13, he says this pursue vigorously or strain forward. The Greek language is, is beautiful. I love English. I'm, I'm kind of a, a word nerd. And I love this because the Greek language here, the word is the words that we get for straining with every sinew. That's a deep word. But every fiber, every tendon of your being is, is straining. It's almost as if those neck muscles. You know when you turn your neck and sometimes you work up in the morning and you can't turn it a certain way and you're stuck? But it's like if you could strain your neck as far as you could and the muscles in your neck start to kind of ache and pull and strain, that's the type of straining that Paul is talking about here as he runs. He is, he is going after something here with vigor. Verse 14, pressing on. I press on towards this goal, the upward call of God and Jesus Christ. In our, in our passage this morning, in verse 16, the verbs and, and, and the action words are holding true. He says in verse 16, something that we've already attained, let us walk by the same rule. He's saying, hold on to this same rule. Verse 17, he also says you want, to be, you want to be imitators, but you want to continuously or consistently walk. So there, there is this run that you are after, and it's consistent. You're straining after it. What is this thing? What is it that has fixated Paul in such a way that he cannot imagine going after something so wholeheartedly? Well, he says it's the upward call of Christ Jesus. Jesus. It's the idea that Paul has been reflecting on that there is an ultimate prize awaiting him, and the ultimate prize awaiting him is being with God fully. It drives everything he does because Christ has claimed Paul's life. He forgets what lies behind him, all the things of this life, good, bad, indifferent. He forgets everything that lies behind him, and he strains forward running towards the prize. He says, I haven't already obtained being perfect. I haven't gotten there yet. And I know that I will not be perfect until I rest with my Savior. And that's the day he's looking forward to. And at a time of his writing, he's looking forward to either the rapture or the day that his body, his flesh, fails. And either one, whichever comes first for Paul, it doesn't matter. I'm straining forward to either event because in either one, I get the same end goal to be with my Savior. And that's what drives him. A while ago, my first church that I had the privilege of serving in, I was uh, I was asked to speak at a summer camp for our high school ministry at the time. And our whole topic was on the idea of being forevermore. And so we talked about things of eternity for an entire week with a group of high school students. And I remember preaching through a passage in Revelation 21 where it talks about the description of heaven. But before I got into the text, I just asked the crowd, and it was a couple hundred kids, I just asked them, I said, I had a huge cardboard cutout here, it was blank, and I'm not much of an artist, but I got a black sharpie, and I asked them, hey, let's draw a picture of heaven together. Let's just let's sketch a picture of heaven. Let's just see what we come up with. Before we read the text, what do you guys think about? What do you know of from the Bible? What do you know? And so we wrote down some things. There were pearly gates, and so I drew some gates that looked gate-ish. Um, I drew angels because they said there's got to be angels in heaven. I mean, somebody, I think, was smart enough to reference Isaiah 6, talking about the angels and how they scream out, holy, holy, holy. And so I got a stick figure, you know, two legs. A trunk and some wings. I got wings in there to denote know, know it was an angel, not just a person. We got some streets of gold, so I drew some bricks and, and different things and got this picture. And we had this crude black and white picture, and there were some other things happening in the picture, all things that are good, all things that are were true, all things that are good things to look forward to in eternity with heaven. But it wasn't until the exercise had taken about three minutes of filling up this poster board with all these different sketches of what we anticipate and view heaven to be like, that somebody said, and Jesus will be there. Yes, he will be. And if he's not there, then the streets of gold, the place where cancer doesn't exist, the place where there are no tears, there is no death, if Jesus is not there, even if all those other things are present, it's not heaven. It's only heaven if Jesus is there. That's what Paul sees. That's what, that's what we want to see. We look forward to that. I mean, streets of gold, amazing. And, and by the way, it's not, you think about it pavement is like the cheapest asphalt and the dirt that we walk and tread on. And we're going to be str- strutting upon gold bricks that are almost so pure that they're translucent, right? And so we're going to be treading on that in heaven. That's amazing. I can't wait to have a glorified body where it doesn't break down entire. I mean, it's been a tiring weekend chasing around 70 middle school and high school students this week. I, I'm just going to be honest. It's been tiring. I can't wait for a day where I don't have to tire chasing down people, right? That's going to be great. But it's only great if Jesus is there. It's only great if he is there. Verse 20 is, is the key to this text this morning. He says two important things. He says, I'll read it again for you, Philippians 3.20, for our conversation is in heaven from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It, that, that idea is actually it's your citizenship is in heaven, as other translations will say. So so here's the key thought this morning for us. We as Christians, this is what we are. We are citizens of heaven. It means we have a belonging somewhere. You belong somewhere. You are a citizen of heaven who is eagerly waiting. You long for someone. This is the the description of the Christian in this passage. And I think this really, if you boil down a lot of things in your life, you could really get it pretty simple. This is what it means to be a Christian. You are a citizen of heaven. You don't belong here. You belong somewhere else. And you are a citizen who is eagerly waiting for someone. You belong somewhere and you long for someone. This type of heavenly thinking is so important for the Christian life. Without it, you will tire. The, the picture that I drew that day really spoke volumes to me. And ever since, I've, I've talked to, to young people. I've talked to people my age. I've talked to older people. Whenever I get the chance to talk to people about the gospel and about heaven, I always talk to them about this. I say, what do you think heaven's going to be like? Because if you have a very broken or faulty or even just not a glorious view of heaven, what are you chasing after? I mean, that's what we preach, right? When we share the gospel with people, we say, we want your sins to be forgiven so that you can be with Christ in eternity in heaven, not in hell. So if this is what we are offering to people, it better be amazing. It better be something that they just can't wait for, that they want it now, that they are longing, eagerly anticipating getting to this place. And too often, we sell it short. And I think we sell ourselves short. We don't think long enough and deep enough about what heaven is going to be like. We need to drive and chase after this and think, man, this is something that I cannot wait to get to. Last week, Pastor Rob shared, I think he did it in both services, he shared an acronym that people talk about. It's the the fear of missing out or FOMO, F-O-M-O. There, there's, a, there's another one that I want to bring to your attention. It, it's kind of a newer thing in the generation that's coming up, but it's called FOBO. It's the fear of a better offer. People are afraid to commit to things now because they're afraid something better may come along after. Think about how that could apply to the Christian life share the gospel with someone you have an eternity with Jesus in heaven okay is that like harps in a cloud i've i've seen that picture before i've heard some other people say it's just a giant church service 24/7 loud as it can be well some people might say that's actually not that exciting i don't know if i want to be in a loud church concert service for 24 hours a day 7 days a week for eternity how long is that again So, the fear of a better offer, sometimes they think, well, maybe I should just live what I'm doing here because it might be better off here than it is there. Why do I want to sacrifice? Why do I want to give up? Why do I want to give my life to this Jesus when this is what you're offering me? But that's not what the Bible is painting this picture of at all. I, I didn't bring it with me, but. Uh, a book that's been transformative, and, and there's not many books that I, I like to reference from the pulpit outside of the Word of God, but but Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven, if you have not had a chance, you get yourself a copy of it. It is about this thick. You do not have to read it cover to cover. It is, is written in such a way that you can jump into different parts that fascinate you, but Randy Alcorn does a great job of kind of taking this view of heaven and, and expanding it in your mind, and I remember when I read that, As a young 20-something, I read that book and it fundamentally changed the way that I viewed my life because it got me excited about what was coming next and it set everything into place here. It gave me something solid that I knew was coming, and so I had a foundation that was not placed in the temporal things of this world, but it was in the future coming that is fixed and safe for me in Christ. And so that, that changed the way that I see things, and, and that's what I think we really need to see that heavenly thinking does. It drives the Christian life. It drives you to understand there's hope for a better day. I've got a couple different passages. I've left the references on the screen. You can write them down, and I'll read them for you. You can check them out later. But heavenly thinking drives the Christian life so that you have hope for a better day. Peter says this, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He is saying there is a future grace that is yours in Christ. That gives you hope for a better day. I've said it this way before. For the Christian, this experience that you are experiencing right now is the closest you'll ever taste to hell. This world, in all of its faults and fears and and brokenness, this right here, for the Christian, is the closest you'll ever taste to hell. This is the worst it gets for you. Now, the converse part of that statement is for the non-believer. This broken, dirty, messed up world is the closest you'll ever taste to a heaven. Now that's sad. Because we all know at the end of the day how broken this place is, and if this is as good as it gets, you have no hope. But for the Christian, there is hope for a better day. Heavenly thinking will drive the Christian life so that you have joy, not just and hope for tomorrow, but joy for today. Peter again writes this in 1 Peter 1.8, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Here's what he says. You have a Savior. You have never seen him with your eyes, You have never actually been with Him, but you love Him. You love Him. And you believe in Him, and in that belief, in knowing Him as you know Him now, you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. There is something about the Christian life that even when things are on fire around you, and we can acknowledge things are burning, we can acknowledge things aren't right, we can acknowledge that things hurt, there is something deep within us that is inexpressible joy. That comes from focusing on eternity. That's what Peter is saying. He's saying you don't see him now, so it's nothing in the present that does this. It's eternity. It's the obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's what causes you to rejoice with joy that is inexpressible right now. I would submit to you, if you struggle with having joy on a day-to-day basis, take up a practice of considering your eternity in Christ. Read passages about heaven. Go to Revelation and read what it sounds like when he creates the new heavens and the new earth and and think about it, that you're going to be there with your Savior and finally see the one who forgave you of your sin. You'll finally get to see him face to face. That will ignite joy in your day. Another reason to think about heaven often and what it drives in the Christian life. It drives purity. 1 John 3, 2 and 3 says this, Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know what, that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And here's the key. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. <coughs> We're God's children now. That's present day. What we will be has not yet appeared, so we're going to be something different when we're resurrected with Christ and we'll be like he is. And so if that is our hope, that drives us to live pure lives. It drives purity in us. Why does it do that? Well, it drives purity in us because we want to be more like the one that we're going to be with. I mean, this happens naturally in a marriage relationship, you become more like your spouse in different ways. Maybe that's why they say the for better or for worse part. There, there are better things about me because I have been married to my wife. There are better things. And hopefully she would say there are less worse things that I have added to her life since we've been married, right? I mean, it's clear that I, I, if you meet my wife, if you know her, many of you do, you'll know that I married up. And so I definitely got the better of the half of the deal. And I fully acknowledge that. And I'm thankful for it. But as I grow older with her as we spend more time getting to know each other as we live life together under our roof and in our home together we become more together. We have to or the thing won't work. It will break and our kids will be a mess. But the longer we are together the more we try to be like each other and help each other. The longer I am with Christ the more I want to be like him. Because in that relationship, me and Jesus, only one of us is changing. So far, his word says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So I'm pretty sure in that relationship, the one who's going to be doing the changing is this guy. I'm going to become more like him. It purifies me because I know I'll be with him and like him. <coughs> the final thing Heavenly thinking does, and this is really where our text is today, and we're just going to take a moment as we finish out to go through the verses of our text a little bit more in-depthly, but heavenly thinking really does drive the Christian life toward maturity. The more you think about heaven, the more mature you will be as a believer. Now, a lot of times we measure maturity by different things. Maybe it's Bible knowledge, Maybe you've been a student of God's word for a long time, and so you can quote so many different parts of the scriptures, or maybe you have a theological bend, and so you could really articulate how everything weaves together from Genesis to Revelation and everything in between. And so maybe that's how we measure Christian maturity, or you think of Christian maturity. Maybe you think of Christian maturity as serving. You serve in the church, you give, you, you, you offer your money and, and your time and your talents to the church, and so that's a signal of maturity. Maybe it's your evangelistic opportunities, and you evangelize. You're, you're that person who the family loves to go out to dinner with, but they also sometimes go, it's going to be awkward when the waitress comes back or the waiter comes back, and they're going to share the gospel. Here we go again. They're going to leave the tip and say, hey, this is great, but you know what's even better? An eternity with Jesus. And so everybody, you, you love that person, but you also know it's going to just feel a little awkward for you at the dinner table, right? Maybe that's Christian maturity. It's, it's the evangelist. No, Paul doesn't seem to think that. Paul seems to think that if you want to be mature as a believer, you are going to think often about heaven, and that's going to change the way that you live. He says it in verse 15. Let any of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal this also to you. What is he saying? He's saying, well, if you're mature, you're going to think about this. Pressing on towards the prize of the upward call of Christ. Pressing on towards heaven. Being with your Savior. That is going to drive your maturity. You are mature in Christ when you think more about eternity than you do about here. The statement that has often been said, I can't remember where it came from. I was researching it earlier this week, and there's a lot of different uh, people. There's poets who said they wrote it and other things. But a person who's so heavenly-minded that no earthly good. Now, I think the context of that was somebody who was so wrapped up in the Bible that they were a little bit overly strict on things, and they didn't really seem to meet with the day-to-day people right. But I would argue that that is such a wrong type of thinking. No one who is truly heavenly-minded, the way that Paul understands heaven, the way that the Bible represents heaven, anybody who is truly heavenly-minded, they are going to be of immense earthly good. The more heavenly-minded you are, the more earthly good you will be. To others and for yourself, the more heavenly-minded you are, the better off you will be. Maturity in the Christian life means thinking eternally, eternally and longing for heaven together. As a church, this is where the rubber meets the road on this. As a church, do we talk about this together in our Sunday school classes, in our connect groups? Before and after service, when you mingle When you meet together in other places outside of the four walls of this building, do we talk about heaven together? Scripture encourages, demands that we do that as a body of believers. I'll give you the biblical evidence. I'm going to run through these. I don't think we have them on the screen, but here's what it says. Hebrews 9.28, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. I'm going to then keep going. I'm going to read this like it's one paragraph because these four verses go right together. Titus 2.3 then continues. So we are eagerly waiting for him, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. That was Isaiah 25, 9. Then it continues in this paragraph that I've built with five different verses. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near, encourage one another, build one another up just as you are doing. And that last phrase is repeated twice in First Thessalonians 4 and 5 where Paul is writing to the Thessalonians telling them, when you think about eternity, when you think about the second coming, you are to do that and encourage one another. When you see a friend, when you see a fellow church member struggling or down, we are to encourage one another with the hope of heaven, the hope of being with our Savior. That's what Paul says in verse 17. Imitate me. Imitate me. Brethren, be followers together of me. He's literally telling them, imitate me. Mark, walk the way that I walk. There is so much to be learned from the lives of other believers. Christ puts us together in community for this purpose, that we may learn together and grow together, that we may be iron sharpening iron, that we may forge together more Christ-likeness amongst us. That's why the church comes together. That's why Jesus put the church together. But man, when Paul says, imitate me, he this is not a proud statement. This is Paul saying, listen, I am adopting this heavenly mindset where I'm focusing eternally, and I want you to think the same way, and I want you to imitate me and do those things with me so that we can do this together and so that you can imitate it for other people. Now, I'm just going to be honest with you. There, there are so many times when I read God's Word in preparation for a message that it pushes on me so hard. At least one point in every sermon that I preach, and, and, and it's, it's, it can be a little exhausting because I'm preaching every week with students, so, so I get pushed on a lot, so I, I, Scripture pushes into me. This week, this verse is the one that pushed into me hard. And so I, I'm telling you that because I'm going to push into you now a little bit. I'm going to let Scripture push into you, but I want you to know that I've been pushed already, so I'm right there with you. This is not me coming after you. I'm, I'm, I'm being pushed along with you. Paul says, imitate me and so that other people can imitate you and have the example that's in us. As parents, maybe grandparents, so it's a brother or a sister, whatever your your familial connections are as a fellow church member here. Do you live your life in such a way that people know that you long for heaven more than the things of this world? Do the things that you care the most about, the things that you talk the most about, the things that you spend your money on, the things that you are so wrapped up in, do they portray to your kids and your grandchildren? Do they tell them that you love heaven more than what's here? I really had to take stock this week. It pushed on me. You're a father, imitate that for your kids. I wrote this down and I want to make sure I say it correctly because I was being pressed on this. It, this is how it came out, and I was writing it down on, a, on my notes. Do others see you fret over temporary trinkets, or do they see you focused on an eternal treasure? Do our kids see us fretting over money? Do they see us fretting over technology in our phones? Do they see us fretting over being well-received by people? These are temporary trinkets. They, not, they are nothing. They don't compare to Jesus. That's what Paul said in Philippians 3, 6, and 7. I count it all as loss compared to the knowledge of knowing my Savior. Everything else is waste compared to Him. I in good conscience say, imitate me as I focus on an eternal treasure. That saying so much is so much more is often caught than taught. That, that's what applies here. People see what we care about. They know. They know when we're chasing after things that are temporary. They're trinkets, and we have a treasure. Let's focus on the treasure. When you think about heaven, it it changes the way that you see opposition in the loss. Now at verses 18 and 19. For many walk, of whom I have often told you now, I'm telling you weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. You see enemies walk differently. Paul says it here. Here's what they do. God takes a back seat to their belly, to their desires. God takes a back seat to whatever they want. I want to be this way today. Well, God says you're not. I want to be this, so God take a back seat. It's my desires, not yours. This is, what, this is what lost people, this is how lost people think. God takes a back seat to their desires. Ironically, they glory in shameful things, things that should be done in darkness. They drag into light, and they make it look like it's amazing. It's great. God sees an irony in that. That's shameful, but we glory in it. That's the way of the lost. He says their mind is set on the here and now. They're focused on the temporary trinkets. That's what the enemies of the cross of Christ do. Now, we we could say that we despise all those things and we are angered by those things, and we should be angered by sin, absolutely, but look at what Paul says. He looks at these enemies and he's telling them with tears in his eyes weeping over them. I think there's two reasons why Paul is weeping. This eternal mindset that he has fixed himself on, he knows that without Christ, if they are enemies of the cross of Christ, they face an eternity apart from Christ, and that causes him to weep. Do we weep? over our lost neighbors? Do we weep over a lost world? Not because we fear that we've lost something that we once had in our our culture in America, but, but we fear for their soul. That's why Paul weeps. Thinking eternally causes you to weep and think differently about the enemies of the cross of Christ. I think, too, in the context of Philippians, I think Paul's weeping over, because there are some that started with them and then neglected them. Seemed like they were part of the family of God, but it turns out they weren't. They were trying it out. Maybe they were testing out this Christian thing. They were curious, and at some point, they just kind of said, nope, not for me, and they walked away, and that caused him to weep. Heaven changes the way that you see opposition in the lost here. Heaven also reorganizes your priorities. Verses 21 and 20. Our, com- our citizenship is in heaven. From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body that may be fashioned like his unto his glorious body according to the working whereby he is even to subdue all things unto himself. We eagerly await. That, that, that's the same idea that is the citizenship idea, that we're eagerly awaiting a Savior that is coming It reorganizes how you live your life. It reorganizes how you plan for retirement. It reorganizes how you plan for everything else. It reorganizes how you spend your money. It reorganizes how you do family things. It reorganizes how you see success for your children. Success is not measured in the degrees that they one day attain or or maybe being a first-generation college kid or getting a great job and having a secure and financially stable existence or being able to stay, you know, close to the way that you wanted them to grow up. Now, the success for us is that they would know their Savior. It transforms it. Heavenly thinking transforms the way we thinks these these things. It reorganizes it. So we eagerly await for a Savior. And and Paul wrote that Savior term very intentionally to the Philippians because they were a very proud city to be a part of the Roman Empire. And that word Savior actually was adopted and stolen 48 years before Jesus walked the earth, before he was born. The title of a Roman emperor from the people of Ephesus was called Savior. The people of Ephesus in 48 BC made a decree that Julius Caesar, the ruler of Rome at the time, should now be known as the universal Savior of mankind. And after that, every Roman Empire who came after him held the same title, Savior, the universal Savior of mankind. Now, we, we think of that and go, wow, that's crazy. You would never want to do that. But, but church family, our citizenship is not as Americans. Our citizenship is first in heaven. And while we are grateful and Cherish the freedoms that we have in this country. We are citizens of a different place first before we have whatever citizenship our passport tells us we have. Don't fall into replacing a Savior with something different. The Romans made that mistake. People of Ephesus made that mistake until Paul came and transformed that place with the gospel. We are citizens of a different place. We reorganize our priorities because Jesus is going to transform these lowly bodies. He's going to transform creation. He's going to rule over all things. Here's a great way to think about how your priorities could look a little mixed up if heaven's not the center of your goals and your your aspirations. A lot of people take beach vacations. Maybe you're at the point now where you own your own beach property or beach home. Um, but for a lot of people, they don't own a beach property, so you rent one, right? You go somewhere for seven days, and I did the math, seven days out of 365 days a year. If you're just a normal family that goes for a seven-day beach trip, you are approximately in that home, that rental property, 2% of your year. I round it up. It's like one point something. 2% of the year, you're in that rental property for seven days. To have an eternal mindset instead of a heaven or an earthly one would acknowledge that it's a rental property, but if you have an earthly mindset, this is how you may see the life that you live here. Let me decorate everything in the rental property. I'm going to actually spend a lot of money decorating. and mo- I'm going to move some walls. I'm going to tear down some things. I'm going to do a complete kitchen renovation. I'm going to mop up the bath, get a brand new granite countertops. We're going to have a really nice bathroom, state-of-the-art spa shower, a full nine yards in this beautiful rental property that we'll spend 2% of our weekend. That we don't even own. That's that's crazy. Nobody would do that. You would not spend your own capital, your own money to reformat and, and change and beautify a rental property that you are not going to be living in. That's the same way if we continue to drive after earthly things instead of heavenly things. We're decorating a rental property. It's great. But it's kind of crazy. Because it's not your home. It's not your home. Don't decorate a rental property. Finally, chapter 4, verse 1. Heaven strengthens your faith for the long haul. You know, as you're running towards something, sometimes people are running because something's chasing them. So, what's chasing after you this morning? There's stuff in your past, or is there fears, or challenges, relationships, something's chasing after you. What Paul says is, I want you to be encouraged, stand fast in the Lord my beloved, and here's why he says that. I think he, he has something in mind. Last verse of the most famous Psalm, Psalm 23 says this, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What a beautiful picture. For the believer, here's what's chasing you from here until you rest on the shores of eternity. God's goodness and mercy are chasing after you. That's what's chasing after you as you run. Paul's saying, I'm going to strain with every muscle fiber in my body towards the upward prize of this call in Jesus Christ. And here's Why, some of people will get discouraged. That sounds exhausting, and it is. It is a difficult life to strain forward, to push against the currents of this world, to face enemies of the cross of Christ. It's all discouraging sometimes. It can be exhausting. It can be really difficult, but here is the hope. Goodness and mercy are following you all the days of your life, and just when you think you're gonna turn back, here's what is right there behind you. It's God's goodness and his mercy. You can translate surely goodness and mercy into his steadfast life love for you. His steadfast love and mercy are chasing after you. For the Christian, that's what's going to sustain you all the way to the end. That's what Paul knows will. Isaiah 41.10, fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. God promises to carry it out to the end. For the believer, there's a great hope in the future and there's a hope today that Christ may press on and push you forward all the way till you finish that race. So run for it, church. Run for it. Run for eternity. Make it look beautiful to all those around you so that they may also join in that same race and run towards a Savior who loves them, who forgives them, Who takes away their sin, casts it into the depths of the sea, and remembers it no more. Let's pray together. Our gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promise of being with you in eternity. We thank you for the promise of the resurrection. God, ultimately, would you help us now as we go forward from this place, to be people who are heavenly-minded and so heavenly-minded that we do so much earthly good. God, for those who feel like something is chasing after them, something that they can't shake, they can't move, they can't get away from it, God, remind them that in Christ, this morning, here's what they can see when they turn and look over their shoulder. Surely goodness and mercy following them all the days of their life. God, we thank you that we can live for other people because you're already going to live for us. You're going to take care of us so we can help others, we can direct others towards you because you're going to do everything that we need. You are the one who's going to bring us safely home to shore. And God, we long for and we eagerly anticipate that day. But until then, Lord, Create in us hearts that long for that day and drive us to be more like your son. Praise your son's precious name, amen.